Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is my co-host Aaron Miller. Uh, this is our news roundup episode for the week in which we'll talk about several of the week's big news items. And today we're going to talk about five of them. We'll kick things off talking about Oculus and the big announcement that Facebook's VR arm made this week. Secondly, we'll talk about a couple of different things related to movies and content. Firstly, Apple uh, doing a deal with Steven Spielberg to resurrect a TV show from the 1980s. And then the launch of what's now Movies Anywhere and was previously Disney Movies Anywhere, a new digital locker service with much broader support from the major studios than we've seen before. Fourth, we'll talk about Snapchat's launch of context cards, which may not sound all that important, but actually seems to presage an expansion of the Snapchat platform in a way we haven't seen before beyond the sort of native Snapchat formats. And then lastly, we'll talk about the controversy around Twitter and its policing of abuse on the platform and the sort of fallout from that this week. So as I say, we'll kick off with Oculus. And uh, this was the fourth developer conference for Oculus this week at which it made a number of announcements. I'd argue the big ones were progress on two standalone headsets that don't require either a mobile phone or a PC. Uh, And then uh, permanent pricing changes, uh, making permanent changes that have been temporary for the Oculus Rift bundle. Uh, and then a handful of other stuff we might get to as well. But I think the biggest ones was the uh, progress on standalone headsets, specifically Oculus Go, which is a $200 mobile-grade standalone headset that's going to be launching early next year. And then progress on uh, Santa Cruz, which is a project to develop a PC-grade standalone headset, um, so one that wouldn't require tethering to a PC. And that's uh, not been detailed in terms of price or availability just yet, but good progress on that. looks like they're getting close on that one, so... Wouldn't be surprised if that launches sometime late next year, possibly the year after. Um, So following on from that mobile standalone launch. Uh, Let's start out with those. Aaron, what was your take on those those two announcements? Uh, A $200 standalone headset to me feels like a big big shift within the VR space, largely because um, having to be tethered to a PC um, was kind of the only way to make VR headsets affordable with the exception of like the Google cardboard kind of approach, which isn't quite the same. Mm. And so I think, I think VR headsets always have needed to be standalone. Um, and they've always needed to be affordable. You're starting to push these now into sort of the gaming console pricing. You know what I mean? Especially at $200, right. it'd be cheap compared to a lot of gaming consoles. And that's where VR all of a sudden gets a little more interesting and exciting, you know, that this is something you don't have to do next to, like, actually tied to your computer. This is something you can do anywhere. Um, and uh, and so I think there's some room there. Gaming and entertainment are obviously the biggest applications of VR that, that kind of make the most sense and where probably there's money to be made. And... Uh, and I think a standalone headset was kind of a necessary component of that, but it had to be affordable and power, powerful enough to do what, you know, what gaming entertainment would require. And so, I don't know, it's a little more exciting. Like, I feel like this is where it's starting to get a little more interesting where it hadn't been before. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, if you think about it from a, a pure pricing perspective, you know, people might be comparing a Google Daydream VR or a Gear VR from Samsung to this device and saying, well, this is twice as much. But of course, those other devices assume you already have a pretty high-end smartphone, whether it's a Pixel or a, one of the Samsung flagships in the last couple of years. And so from a total cost of ownership perspective, $200 is a lot less than what you would pay 
yeah. uh, to use you know, either Daydream or Gear VR, including the price of the smartphone. And of course, you're an iPhone user or you're an LG smartphone user or somebody else who doesn't have a, a smartphone that's compatible with one of those uh, things, you're kind of out of luck anyway. So, you know, this is an option for those who are not in one of those ecosystems already, but it's also got some of the benefits of a standalone device. It's highly optimized for VR specifically rather than, you know, this is a smartphone and by the way, it can do VR. So the lenses and everything else should be more optimized and uh, it shouldn't get hot in the same way that a smartphone tends to do if you use it in VR for a while. And there will be some other benefits that, that maybe help to justify that price. But it also means Facebook and Oculus are now sort of uh, plowing their own furrow uh, outside of dependence on Samsung in this market. And you know these are different markets. They use the same platform. Facebook and Oculus were very clear that they're still very much supporting Samsung. That's still a great option and so on. Um, but you know Samsung must have kind of seen the writing on the wall here. And it's interesting that Samsung has announced with Google Daydream compatibility. It's also recently launched a Windows mixed reality headset. So, you know, they're clearly hedging their bets a little bit at this point and, and saying, you know, we're going to explore a number of different options to get uh, VR to consumers. And, and so that's kind of interesting to see. Um, worth talking about that PC one as well. And, and you kind of talked a little bit about this already, but um, that isn't coming yet. But it sounds like they made an enormous amount of progress, sort of red takes from several people who were at the Oculus event this week and said it really is quite compelling and seems to be largely there. And, and the key thing here is it uses what's called inside-out tracking, which means the headset itself can uh, see the environment around it and kind of map that environment rather than requiring sensors in the room like HTC's Vive where you have to put up these sort of pillars around you that measure where you are in a space and ensure that you don't go walking into walls and things like that. This thing comes with sen sensors that are on the corners of the headset such that it can see kind of very well in front of you and even slightly behind you so that if you lift your arms above your head, if you're in a VR environment, you're pulling arrows out of a quiver or something on your back, you can kind of see where the controllers go and therefore track that even behind you slightly. Um, so really quite compelling. And so it means you won't have cables, you won't have to set up external sensors. So this will not only be untethered from a PC, but it will also be, uh, you know, it will offer what they call six degrees of freedom. So you can not only turn in different directions, but actually move in space in three different directions as well. And so, um, you know, this is going to be quite impressive when it finally does debut. And again, the total cost of ownership, you know, whatever the price ends up being, will likely be far lower than having a dedicated PC plus, you know, Oculus Rift type headset. So, uh, you know, these, these are really going to push VR further into the mainstream. And that, that's clearly a goal here for Facebook. And it's talked about the fact it doesn't expect that to happen anytime soon. But this week, Mark Zuckerberg talked about wanting to get a billion people in VR. And that's one of those wonderful, ambitious sounding, but ultimately <laughs> yeah. vague goals. You know, there's no time frame put on that or anything like that. Um, you know, that could be in 10 years from now, it could be 20 years from now. You know, there's no way to measure whether it's succeeding and achieving that goal ultimately. And, and given that the numbers are in this sort of 10 million roughly uh, sort of ballpark today, you know, it's about a hundredth of the way to that goal at this point. Um, but it was interesting to see them talk in those terms. It does feel like they're trying to broaden VR beyond where it currently is. Yeah, it's still, the whole industry is still missing. I hesitate to use the term killer app because I feel like that's um, a widely abused term. Mm -hmm. But it's still missing a, a super compelling use case that makes everybody buy one of these the same way they bought like a Nintendo Wii way back when. Mm, yeah. I mean, there has to be something still content-wise that makes everybody want one of these. And it's not quite there, although <clears throat> it does feel like it's more and more likely that these sorts of things are getting in the hands of indie developers and others who are going to come up with creative ideas that other people can kind of follow the lead on. Um, 
but yeah, it, it, th this sort of evolution is, is, is encouraging and it's good to see that it hasn't died off because of lack of interest, um, the way some other kind of tech trends mm -hmm. often do. And so, but, but the, it, if the content doesn't show up in a meaningful way, um, it, it is going to kind of, I don't know, it'll eventually flame out. There has mm -hmm. to be a reason to be using VR that's exciting. Besides yeah, and just, it goes beyond hardcore gaming, yeah. Yeah, and that's besides just VR itself is kind of a gimmick. That, that's the problem right. in so many of the tech demos, even the ones that, that uh, Zuckerberg did you know, recently. feel They still feel too gimmicky to me to feel mm -hmm. like a, a use case that makes somebody want to drop a few hundred dollars. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, if you look at VR, I think you go back a couple of years, there were several big challenges to achieve. There was the technology, it simply wasn't ready yet, wasn't good yeah. enough. Um, content, as you just mentioned, was one of them. And then price was another. This was really expensive stuff and therefore wasn't going to go mainstream. It feels like, you know, the technology is starting to really get there. The price is starting to come down. And the other thing they announced was, you know, making permanent the $400 price for the Oculus Rift bundle, which brings that down into you know, quite a different sort of price bracket. And that's a trend that we've seen over the last few months with HTC technology also coming down, even Sony's technology coming down a bit in price, kind of squeezing the middle market where Microsoft's trying to play with its OEM partners. Um, but content is still a big deal. And I think, you know, the, the value proposition for gamers is fairly clear. You know, this is a, a more immersive form of gaming. Yeah. But for somebody who doesn't see the appeal in hardcore gaming, the, the content and that whole value proposition still isn't there. But now, but it, but you don't want to be a producer for this kind of stuff unless the platform is reaching an audience mm -hmm. that you believe would materialize. Right. And back when these were too expensive, you didn't have the confidence to produce something because not enough people would actually own the VR device. That's now changing with the price coming down. So now content mm -hmm. producers are more motivated because they feel like it's not unreasonable for for people to drop two to four hundred dollars on a device that will be able to deliver what they're making. Yeah. No, absolutely, I agree. Um, there were various other announcements. They were all sort of minor ones in terms of the platform and so on. It's interesting to see a social component um, continue to be important and logical given Facebook's ownership, but it was also in Microsoft's recent mixed reality event that they believe there'll be a social component. The other thing that was common to both was sort of a desktop, a VR desktop thing. So pulling apps into your VR environment, which feels like one of those things that like they're doing because they can, but I don't think anybody actually wants that necessarily. So. Be interesting to see how those two things kind of pan out. It reminds me um, of uh, those really old, kind of ridiculous, uh, like Finder window manager kind of VR replacements that people conceived of over a decade ago, where like you're reaching in 3D space to open up a file drawer to pull out a file right. rather than just yeah. pointing and clicking. Tapping <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah, obviously that kind of stuff is ridiculous. That, that can't mm -hmm. be what we do with it. And so the idea of I, I don't know. So, so, yeah, it seems a little silly, the idea of desktop-type apps within that space, mm -hmm. but maybe it makes sense. Yeah. I guess it depends no, we'll, on we'll where see. I mean, I think, I think everybody brings to it what they're good at, right? And then they try to make it work there, too. Yeah. And ultimately, some of that might work out, but we've got to think of what the, what the sort of VR-specific use cases are that make sense as well. Um, okay, well, let's move on to the next topic, and we're going to, to some extent, take these two as a pair because they relate to video content, but Apple and Steven Spielberg have uh, announced a deal um, to reboot a TV show from the 1980s. It's a TV show that wasn't enormously popular at the time, only ran for two seasons, but it was called Amazing Stories, and obviously with Spielberg's name attached, you know, did fairly well. And this kind of short episodes, sort of 20-minute episodes with, you know, commercials bumped up to a half hour, 
um, of sort of sci-fi slash horror type stuff. It feels a little bit sort of Twilight Zone-y, um, but sort of perhaps more intended for a younger audience. Um, but at any rate, that, that show from the 1980s has been picked up as a sort of a reboot by Apple. And this is first real deal that Apple has done after the arrival of two former Sony TV executives who are now running the original video content effort at Apple. And so this is the first sign of the kind of deals Apple's going to do with this new billion-dollar budget that's been talked about. It sounds like this particular show will have a budget of about $5 million an episode. So you know, this is going to be a fairly big budget proposition. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see where this goes. And I'm not sure that the Amazing Stories brand itself is all that compelling, but certainly Steven Spielberg's name will be and with Apple also behind it and, and, you know, the production value they're going to put behind it as well could be pretty compelling. Yeah. Well, and I think, I don't know if you remember, we sort of speculated on the kind of content that Apple would be producing, especially as far as maturity level goes, because a lot of the hit shows on the streaming services right now tend to be more mature for more mature audiences. You know, there's there's some nudity, there's some language, there's some violence, the kind of stuff you wouldn't feel comfortable sharing with your family. A lot of their hit breakout shows are like that. But Apple has never been, I can't say they've never been a fan of that kind of content, but it seems that they've always sort of shied away. They always try to be really family friendly as a company. And and this is a signal, I think, of, of that that corporate culture continuing. I think this is exactly the kind of place where I expect them to play in terms of original content being the kind of stuff that you would feel comfortable watching with, you know, the 10-year-old in your household kind of a thing. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, it's it'll be very interesting to see how they take it. As I say, it feels like it's a more family-friendly type show um, than, you know, some of the other ones out there. And if they keep that going, then that would be great. I think it would be interesting to see one of these services really kind of push the envelope on more family-friendly content. I, I've been testing the Apple TV 4K uh, recently, and one of my frustrations is that there's actually very little content that you can watch as a family. Um, mm. You know, the vast yeah. majority of Netflix originals are, you know, TVMA rated. Um, you know, with Disney missing from the iTunes store from a 4K perspective, most of the rest of the stuff's from other studios, so there's less sort of family and kids type stuff. And with kids stuff, there is is mostly the sort of trashier Sony type stuff rather than you know the sort of Disney Pixar stuff that tends to be a bit more you know, purely family friendly, if you like. Um, and so, yeah, it's been one of my frustrations in general with original content, but interesting to see this, you know, kind of highlighted recently with testing, you know, the 4K Apple TV and even the TV I'm using is obviously a 4K TV. And so I thought I'd try Amazon video. I had basically the same experience there. So it will be interesting to see a player come into this space and do stuff that's more aimed at families. That feels like a, a space that Apple could easily dominate if they chose to do so. I agree. I won't be surprised if they don't do a single TVMA uh, production, actually. Mm. And that's yeah, just sort of like the internal line that they draw. Yeah. No, I I could easily see them doing some of both. Um, but it will, be very, it will be very interesting to see how this goes. It sounds like they canceled the project that they were getting close to signing with the Weinstein company after the yeah. Ivy, Harvey Weinstein uh, allegations came to light. So there's at least one other project that's not now going to go ahead. But there haven't really been a lot of details about which projects they, they might be on the verge of signing or actually signing. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. So the related topic was this Movies Anywhere launch. And if you're not familiar with the sort of background here, there have been these two competing digital locker services. Disney had a proprietary one that nobody else ever joined called Disney Movies Anywhere. And there was a competing one called Ultraviolet. And the concept with both of them was very similar, which was that you bought uh, a, a video through 
uh, one of the online storefronts, so iTunes, Google Play Music, Amazon Video, and so on. And you could then have a, uh, a linkage to this sort of central service, whether it was Ultraviolet or Disney Movies Anywhere, that would allow you then to watch that content on other platforms than the one where you bought it, such that it would uh, sort of offer some cross-compatibility between those. The big problem was Ultraviolet had several big names, but not Disney. Disney Movies Anywhere had Disney, but not any other names. And so, you know, you could participate in both as a consumer, but they were fragmented as well. And so it didn't really solve the fundamental fragmentation problem. Um, Disney Movies Anywhere has been kind of fun because you could at least get all your Disney movies in one place. Uh, but the new move that was made this week was that Disney Movies Anywhere has become just Movies Anywhere with the addition of four other big studios. So uh, Sony's in there, Universal's in there, Warner Brothers is in there, and I'm forgetting the last, oh, 21st Century Fox is the last one. So five big studios in there. And so I, I sent up for, signed up for this this week. I was a Disney Movies Anywhere user before. Aaron, sounds like you kind of did the same. And, you know, it was kind of fun to see once I connected it to Google Play and Amazon, as somebody who mostly buys stuff through iTunes now, but has bought stuff through those other platforms in the past at various times because there was a deal, because it was a giveaway, because of something, a device I was using at the time, whatever. It was really fun to suddenly have this much larger library of content that is now going to be available on all my Apple devices where, you know, the Amazon video service still isn't on the Apple TV, for example. Google Play isn't there, but I could watch that content now on the Apple TV or on my phone. I could even download it to take with me on an iPad. Uh, so suddenly this, this promise of digital lockers, which has been around for a long time, actually starts to make sense and be a bit more compelling. Yeah, it's exciting. In fact, it really just makes me wonder <clears throat> how long or if ever the holdout studios, like Paramount is, is I think, probably the biggest holdout on this. Um, you know, once I wonder how long it will take them to come along with this or if they ever will. Um, I hope they do. I mean, Paramount Paramount carries, you know, a bunch of the DreamWorks movies, uh, you know, other big properties like Star Trek, um, uh, Christopher Nolan movies. And so it'd be nice to see Paramount show up as well. But um, but this is, uh, hopefully this just turns out to be a momentum thing because the idea of a digital locker with movies is fantastic and just so user-friendly, especially with how seamless they made it. I mean, it was really easy to sign up. I did have a technical hiccup for whatever reason. It wouldn't let me do that my Amazon Prime account. Um, but I'm sure that just had to do with launch day kind of stuff. But then it's so great when you just, you know, like you were saying, I, I, I pulled in other accounts and mostly tend to watch through iTunes because of Apple devices. And and it's just so awesome to see these other films now show up in, in my iTunes library where they hadn't before. It's just super convenient and if anything, it makes me more comfortable buying movies, which I imagine is the is the the economic argument for doing yeah. this. No, absolutely, that's right, for sure. No, that's, that's I think that's absolutely what this is about. It's saying sort of, don't worry about where you buy stuff; you can now watch it anywhere that you want to. And I think there's a tie-in with buying DVDs and Blu-rays as well. Oftentimes, there's some kind of digital code that you can use to unlock the digital copy when you buy, you know, a physical copy of the stuff, and that will now be, you know, assume you buy it from one of those studios will now be part of this system as well. So, you know, that's another nice benefit is you buy a DVD or a Blu-ray, you don't have to worry about it, it gets scratched or damaged at some point or lost because you'll still have that digital copy that you can then watch in any of these ecosystems. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to these two last topics. Um, first off, talk about Snapchat context cards. And this is one of those uh, announcements that would be very easy to sort of fly under the radar because it didn't sound like a massive announcement. It didn't get a ton of attention this week, but it feels a bit more meaningful 
than perhaps it's been seen as by some people this week. And I think the main reason is if you go back six to nine months, basically the only content you could share on Snapchat was uh, native content, essentially. It had to be sort of a picture or video, uh, whether you were an individual, whether you were a brand that was publishing to Discover, for example. Uh, It was pictures and videos in that sort of native vertical format, and that was it. And there was no way to link out from it. There was no way to connect it to anything else. Uh, And, you know, if you're happy to sort of spend your life in Snapchat and that was all you wanted to do, that was fine. But it meant it was this little sort of insular community that... Uh, I was very limited in terms of the content you could share and in terms of linking out to other things you were doing. So from a brand perspective, from a promotional perspective, for lots of other reasons, it it was limiting. And a few months back, Snapchat started allowing people to link out from snaps so that you could kind of swipe up and it would link to something else. And so that then made it a bit more suitable for promotional activity or even, you know, as an individual user, linking to something that you were taking a picture of and so on. Well, this week they announced this context cards uh, concept, which basically means that if a snap is linked to a particular location, uh, when you swipe up on the snap, it will now show you all kinds of information relating to that location. So it'll have the address, if it's at a restaurant or whatever, have the address, the phone number. Uh, it would have restaurant reviews for a restaurant, for example. It will allow you to summon you know, Uber or Lyft, for example, to take you to the place from within the app and lots of other stuff like that. And so um, lots more detail and again more uh, flexibility in terms of content and linking out and uh, starting other types of activities uh, relative to what Snapchat's allowed in the past. So really breaking out of that insular world into sort of a broader world. And, and you, Aaron, had an interesting point where we were talking before we started recording about this. So, so kind of what was your take on this? Well, th- this is the first major uh, platform addition that they've made since the IPO. And that's a big deal because, um, you know, there are a lot of concerns reasonably among uh, those initial investors about about Snapchat being able to grow the platform in a meaningful way. Are they going to be able to reach more people and make this a bigger draw to a wider audience um, rather than just sort of these um, that this younger demographic that they targeted really well um, at first? Um, this is a big deal because I think it gives it inspires some confidence in the company's ability to grow the platform, which, which to be honest, I didn't have a lot of confidence in. But this is a cool idea, and these context cards are are neat, and hopefully will be useful and meaningful to to people and, and draw more people into the platform. It's it's going to take things like that for Snapchat to grow as a platform. It can't just be based on the current feature set because they would have grown more than they had if the current feature set was enough to reach broader audiences. Like there's no like there's no difference pre or post IPO in terms of, you know, their core feature set and how appealing it is. And so if they if they're going to grow this, they have to grow it by adding features that make it more useful and engaging and interesting. And this is promising. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think um, the, the other thing that's interesting about this is it it sort of inserts Snapchat into what would otherwise be an exit from the app and into something else like Google right. or directly into the Uber or Lyft app or whatever and. I wrote about this for Tech Pinions this week, but it's just the latest in a series of moves that basically disintermediates search. You know, So for Google, this sort of stuff's really important because in the past, you start out at Google, you'd search for something, then you'd hop onto somewhere else. So it'd be a means to an end, but that means to an end was where Google made a lot of money because ads would be served up to you as you were looking for these things, and then you'd click on some of them and make a lot of money. Uh, now, increasingly, these things are just started from within other apps. So you know, Snapchat's move with context cards is an example of that. Uh, Microsoft added Cortana into Skype this week, such that if you're having a conversation and you talk about a movie, it would then suggest movie reviews and things like that within the app. So, you know, whereas previously you'd have hop out of the app and go somewhere else, 
Uh, now you just stay in the app. You never go to Google. You just get the stuff served up to you automatically. And that's happening you know, in so many places. I mean, Amazon's a default starting point for product searches now rather than Google, for example. Uh, for, I think 55% of the population was what one survey suggested. And there's all kinds of stuff like that. But then for Snap as well, it's another way to keep people in the app, to stop people from bouncing out because they reach the lim- limitations of what the app's able to do. Instead, they stay in the app. They, they maybe call an Uber, but then they stay in the app, continue communicating there with somebody about where they're going to meet up or whatever. So it, it both adds value to the Snapchat experience and acts as a further sort of threat for Google and companies like Google that have acted as sort of go-betweens between users and the things they want to do. Yeah, well, and another thing I like about this is it broadens opportunities for ad load, which I think is one of Snapchat's biggest struggles. Based on how snaps work and how they're presented to people, it's hard to plug advertising into this format that they have. I mean, the way you kind of can bounce from one snap to the next, you could, I suppose you could plug, you could plug in little ads in between, but it has, it's, it pales in comparison to the potential ad load of scrolling through a Facebook feed or through an Instagram feed. Right. I mean, as you're scrolling through Instagram, the ads are so easily inserted in there and are not at all troublesome. And and Mm -hmm. Instagram advertising revenue is growing and Facebook has seemingly still not ever really tapped out on what what ad load they can accomplish in a Facebook feed. Uh, Snapchat doesn't have a feed like the same that's structured in the same way visually. And so it's harder to figure out how to insert advertising and context cards are one of the are, are, are a potential place for inserting ad load and 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 that's the kind of thing that it will take and so if you have a location-based snap you know you could see a context card from a local restaurant or something like that maybe being relevant and the restaurant paying for that it's going to take some creativity to build up the potential ad load Um, and this is the kind of creativity that they need yeah no absolutely it's definitely a new set of revenue opportunities and really the first chance for snap to do stuff that's really um interest and relevance based because a lot of their ads have just been demographic based so you're a snapchat user you're probably between 15 and 24 and we're going to serve you up an ad that's intended for that audience it's not necessarily based on context because the context is entertainment and what you want to sell may be something completely different so this you know it's about a location you've expressed an interest in that location whether it's a restaurant or whatever you could serve up something relevant to that so it does feel like there's some good sort of business model opportunities here uh, Snapchat kind of said they're not going for that in the first instance, but that's clearly something they're thinking about for the longer term here. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about this sort of Twitter controversy as our last topic. Um, in case you haven't sort of been following this this week, um, after in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein allegations that I mentioned briefly earlier, this is the Hollywood producer who's allegedly assaulted and raped and sexually harassed women uh, in Hollywood for many years, and those allegations kind of all coming out over the past week or two. Uh, Rose McGowan, an actress who was one who had uh, suffered uh, from these issues, uh, was very vocal about this on Twitter this week, in the course of which I guess she shared somebody's personal phone number. And it's still not clear to me whose it was, in what context, whether it was inadvertent or deliberate or whatever. But this got her suspended from Twitter for 12 hours until she deleted that tweet and then her account was opened back up again. But the problem was that it was not at all clear that was what had happened. All we knew was she... Uh, shared her experiences about this stuff, and then she was suspended from Twitter. And Twitter originally sort of gave its response, which is doesn't comment on individual accounts. And then, as is usually the case, when there's enough of media outcry, they did eventually comment on it. They explained what had happened. She deleted the tweet. Her account was reinstated and so on. As a result of this and the sort of broader inconsistency in dealing with abuse that it highlights, uh, many women chose on Friday, today that we're recording this, 
uh, to boycott Twitter. And so there's this women boycott Twitter movement that happened today. Many other women felt that, that silencing themselves wasn't really the right response to this and decided to be extra vocal, share their own experiences, um, be you know extraordinarily present on Twitter instead. And so in several different ways to kind of protest this. But it really feels like this kind of came to a head this week. And all this is based on the same old stuff with Twitter of uh, in consistently policing abuse. So sort of a minor issue like what Rose McGowan did this week gets her suspended, whereas people that issue repeated threats of death and rape and other things against women and others on the platform uh, get reported to Twitter and no action is taken. So, uh, you know, that's the big issue here. And it, it's an issue that Twitter seems unwilling to really address properly uh, in all kinds of ways, as we've talked about before. Aaron, what was your response to this story this week? Yeah, it's baffling to me that they are doing such a bad job of this. I mean, this was a this was a massive screw-up in my opinion, in terms of the impression, because it, the Harvey Weinstein scandal is is tied up in this idea that he was an incredibly powerful man who could silence his critics really easily, right, with threats, with blackballing, with all kinds of uh, ways that he essentially wielded his power and influence in Hollywood. And that's why he got away with this for so long. And then Twitter shows up and silences one of, its, one of Harvey Weinstein's critics for 12 hours without explanation. That is... A, that is a mind-bogglingly stupid thing to do based on the specific context of this situation. And I, I'm kind of blown away that that wasn't like glaringly obvious to people at Twitter who made this decision. And, and I think this reflects the general level of obtuseness that they have about the, abu- the uh, online abuse issues that they seem to be consistently ignoring or... Um, or, or I don't even know. I don't know how to describe their their lack of... Uh, uh, of um, of progress on this because it really is weird. There's no good reason for the platform to be a place for some people to threaten other people, to threaten them personally, to to threaten their families, to 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 invoke imagery of these people of 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 Jews being put into ovens, of uh, of black people being lynched. I mean, these are the kinds of things that are being continually perpetrated on the right. platform, and and this is you know. It, Twitter as a private company has no obligation to provide a platform to this kind of speech. They don't have to do it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and instead they, they, make it, they make it a great deal easier and uh, more damaging. And I am a staunch free speech advocate. I really am. But I also think that sp- free speech means that private actors don't have to assist or subsidize or aid other people's speech if they don't like it. All right, and, uh, and and Twitter is a private company, and I don't understand their engagement here with this. Yeah, so. no, absolutely. Yeah, and, and then the weirdest thing of all is it's not like their policies say this is all fine. Right. Um, their policies explicitly say this stuff is not fine, but it's right. just that when it's reported to them, they take no action half the time. And, uh, you know, that's the most baffling thing at all. And it, it makes you think that there are either employees or co- contractors working for Twitter who have their own personal views that they bring to bear on this stuff and decide not to take action. Uh, in some of these cases, because there's really no other realistic explanation given that the policies are very clear. Uh, But yeah, it continues to be really odd. One of the the big weaknesses of Twitter as a company right now is is their inability to respond to this stuff, which in turn puts people off using the platform, drives people away, um, and, you know, continues to give it a bad reputation for this kind of stuff. Yeah, it would be so fascinating to to be a fly on the wall during these strategic discussions to figure out exactly what their motives are and their reasoning is. Yeah, really. Because, you know, on the one hand, they, they obviously are interested in user growth, and so that would be a reason 
to 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 not ban or police this kind of thing because they're drawing in users, but they're also driving users away. And there are people who exactly. quit using Twitter or like today, um, you know, boycott Twitter because of how poorly they're managing this. Yeah, no, absolutely agreed. All right, well, let's leave it there for today. Thanks very much, everybody, for listening. As usual, we'll have one or two uh, links in the show notes to things that we've talked about in case you want to read more about them. Uh, but that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Bye-bye.